Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. In today's teaching, Pastor Scott Osborne shows how Jesus read the scriptures, not by focusing on what we should do for God, but rather what God has done for us. All right, good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, one of Nate's responsibilities was to preach today, and um, he abdicated that quickly. And uh, so I'm filling in, if you will. And I know you're very sad, but I'm glad to be with you. And we're actually just going to do a one-off. Uh, we were in a series on the church, and uh, we're going to continue. Nate did a little intro for his uh, idea about the gifts on a video a couple weeks ago when we canceled because of snow. And he's going to pick that up next week. But I wanted to do this morning a passage from Genesis chapter 22 that has been a meaningful passage <clears throat> in my life. And not only did Nate cross the boundary this week of um, having his first child, I have also crossed the boundary, okay? I now have readers, and I'm very disappointed. Like, my humanity has almost come full circle. And so, yes, I have clear ones, so hopefully you can't see them. But if you see me doing weird things, it's a bad day. So, be gracious. How do you know that you can trust God when He leads you through the darkest valleys of your life? How do you know you can just trust God with the everyday things of your life? How do you know you can trust God as we walk through, hopefully, the closing days of this pandemic? We've been talking a lot in our family about God's sovereignty uh, this week. And actually just being honest about where we're at with trusting God uh, because the pandemic has thrown a bunch of our plans into great confusion. And God has slowly been changing all of that and working it all out. So I am on my way to Charlotte this afternoon, Charlotte, North Carolina, to take my girls to a concert. So pray for me. We think we have gotten it all figured out. Um, but we're just excited that through all of this, we're actually learning to trust God. We're learning to see that He is working, and, and, and then it's kind of easy to trust God in the great days of life, isn't it? But how do we know that God is really there? How do we know that, that, that our doing is not turning God's favor upon us. And what I mean by that is, how do you know that you're, that you're doing enough? Like so many times, like if bad things come, we're like, man, I must not be doing right with God. And I want to begin looking at this from Genesis chapter 22. If you know, this is a very famous story. And I'm going to read through this story together. It's a little bit longer passage. And when we're done, <clears throat> I'm going to ask for just comments or questions or things that just stand out to you from this particular passage. So in Genesis chapter 22, sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early in the morning, 
Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. And he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up to his father, Abraham. Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached a place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hands and he took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. So Abraham looked up, and there was in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh, or the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your only son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. That is the story of Abraham binding his son Isaac. And when you read and hear that story, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, what stands out to you in that story? The testing, yeah, the testing side of it, yeah. Yeah, there's... No information regarding that. It's like he just was like, okay, tie me up and put me up there. Yeah. It's good. What else? What is immediate, obedience? immediate obedience. To what type of, of task? Like if God said, go clean your room, you'd, and you heard God speak to you, <laughs> you'd probably be like, all right, I'm on my way. But if he said, take your son and kill him, what would you do? (laughs) Wait a second, we're going to start arguing. This story is just crazy. It really is. The, The intensity of this story. That God, the creator of heaven and earth, is asking... Abraham to actually kill his only son. And 
in light of that, I don't need to get God off the hook. Does that make sense? Like, I don't need to justify to you that God is unfair in this. Like, God is God, and I'm not trying to, like, justify him. I'm going to give you some reasons why I think this happens a little bit later. But it's just a very crazy passage, and I didn't even think about this until right now. But, you know, what if Nate, God said to Nate, take B <laughs> and go up to the mountain? And I think there's a lot to deal with in this passage. And one of the things I want to do as we begin this passage is remind us about a very important principle. And the principle is this, is that fundamentally, who is the Bible all about? You or me or Jesus? Okay, that was, I mean, if I give you those questions, you're always going to say who? <clears throat> you're always going to say Jesus, right? And what I want us to stop and think about is that this passage, before it can ever mean anything to you and me, has to first be about who we say the Bible's all about. And we say that the Bible is all about Jesus because Jesus himself said this. On the screen in, in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus had uh, risen from the dead and, and two of his disciples, we're not sure who they were, were walking on the road to Emmaus. <laughs> and this is where I think Jesus has a sense of humor. He just kind of walks up beside the two disciples and like, hey guys, what's up? And he, the two disciples, you remember the story? They're like, what do you mean what's up? You haven't heard the chaos that's going on in Jerusalem? This man, Jesus, who's been feeding everyone and healing everyone, they just killed him and now the tomb is empty. And Jesus is like, oh, okay, that's cool. What else is going on? Until you come to Luke chapter 24 and he says this to, his, to these two disciples. How would you like to be talking with Jesus, not knowing it's Jesus? And then Jesus say, how foolish are you? And how slow to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Basically, he's like, guys, I'm so glad that you've studied the entire Old Testament your whole life. And these disciples probably could quote the first five books of the Bible to you. And we can't get past verse 1 of Genesis 1. And that's okay. But... He's like, you've done all this study and you haven't even realized that that all is pointing to me and that I had to suffer before that? Then Jesus, a little bit later in Luke chapter 24, is with all 12 of his disciples. And he says this to them, this is what I've told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me, where? In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Okay, we're going to stop right there at this point. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people divided up the law, the prophets, and the writings. They called it the Tanakh. And in this Tanakh, Jesus is saying in each one of those three primary sections, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the, the prophets, which we would consider the twelve minor, the five, and then even some of Joshua and Samuel, and then the writings which includes the Psalms and the Proverbs. And what Jesus is saying is he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Which ones? All of them. All three parts. 
And he says, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins we preach in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. What is Jesus saying to his disciples? Everything in the Old Testament has been pointing to who I am and what I came to accomplish. So, if we read our Bibles and do not come away with what Jesus comes away with, then I want you to know we are not reading our Bibles rightly. If we come away from Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 22, sorry, with any other idea than about Jesus and who he is first before us, we are not actually doing Christian reading of the Bible. I say this sometimes, well, often when I talk about this topic, like, what makes Christians, Christians. You could go to a synagogue and you could go to a mosque and you could preach Genesis chapter 22. And I want you to know that in lots of churches in America, you could preach Genesis chapter 2 and never say who? Jesus. Okay? And if I were to do that for you this morning, I could go preach that anywhere and the Jewish people would love me. The, the mosque would enjoy it. Oh, they would not think I'm a great speaker. But they'd be fine with the message. But what actually makes Christianity, Christianity is that we see Jesus as the first and foremost element in what the Bible is all about. So, in Genesis chapter 22, here are some of the the analogies that I would give for us about Jesus being here. Look at the relationship between Isaac and Jesus. Both were sons of promise. We're going to come to this again in a few minutes, but why is Isaac so important to Abraham? If you remember, God had promised to Abraham, through you and your offspring, I'm going to bless everyone in the world. Everything that is going to come to you, Abraham, for the world is going to come through this son of yours. And right now, how many sons does Abraham have? Sons of promise, Isaac. And so the point here is that Jesus and Isaac are both sons of promise. Both were the only son. Did you catch that twice there? Take your son, your only son. Take your son, your only son. Both births of Jesus and Isaac were supernatural. Yeah. Yeah if you are familiar with that. Both were led to a mountain to be sacrificed. I can't prove this to you, but this idea of Moriah, where Abraham had to take Isaac, is used one other time in the Bible. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, which is where Solomon was told to build a temple. So, more than likely, this connection is even more with the place of Moriah, and both were led to this place, this mountain, to be sacrificed. Both, in a sense, were raised from the dead. And both were the blessing and the seed of which Jesus becomes the final and ultimate seed. So what I want to tell you this morning is that if we don't read 
Genesis chapter 22 with some sort of what I would call Christocentric, Christocentric ideas and lenses and the way we look at it, we're going to miss a whole lot. And so what I want to do this morning is give you three points about how we should be looking at this passage about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is our substitute. He is a sacrificial substitute. God is calling in your debts, and you cannot pay it. Now, if you think that the command that God gave to Abraham was crazy, like I do, maybe it's because, like I didn't, I didn't quite understand the culture of Abraham's time. An Old Testament scholar has written a book called The Death and the Resurrection of the Beloved Son, And in that, he's comparing, in a sense, the relationship between Isaac and Jesus. And he says this about the ancient culture. Ancient peoples and cultures uh, did not have aspirations for individual success. Prosperity was oriented around family and family prosperity. In ancient cultures, you wanted your family to succeed. So, what do I mean by that? Like... In our day, we are more concerned about our individual success than we are about our familial success. And I don't have a movie in mind per se, but if you see any movies that are based in the eastern part of the world, how much is tied up with a son who is always shaming the family, right? This, what? Thank you, Mulan. A daughter who, say again? My big fat Greek wedding. wedding. Yes, see, I didn't want to come up with these. You just have them in your minds. But the idea, again, is tied up with family, not with individuals. And so in an ancient culture, what a family did, what an individual did, rather, affected the family, positively or negatively. Now, for us Americans who live in the most again, I can't prove this, most individualistic society that has ever been, it's hard to understand this. We're the most radically individualistic, consumeristic culture. If someone in our family acts shamefully, what does that have to do with us? If my brother acted shamefully, I'd be like, shame on you and have a good day. You live four hours away from me. I see you on major holidays. You know what I mean? Like, That's very pejorative. I have a much better relationship with my brother than that. But it wouldn't affect, in a sense, my life and my being down here. Everyone wouldn't look around me and be like, your brother is that guy? I'm not hanging out with you anymore. Now, we have an unbalanced view of the collective and individual responsibility. And the older you get, the more you realize that you are a product of your family. I mean, how many times, if you, I don't know how old you are in your parenting, but you ever said, I will never do that the way my parents did that? And then you do the same thing, and all of a sudden you have this aha moment, and you're like, oh crap. I am my mom. I am my dad. Now, in a culture that is far less individualistic in Abraham's day, and far more family centered, God requires something of families. 
And why I'm telling you all this is like to set the context for what God requires of families is this. On the next screen, Exodus chapter 13, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Exodus chapter 22, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Numbers chapter 18, verse 15. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem. There is a price on the head of the firstborn in this ancient familial culture unless there was redemption. In a sense, the firstborn son was, their life was forfeit until redemption, the price of redemption had been paid. Again, why? What is the meaning of all this? All the hopes and all the dreams of that family lay primarily on the firstborn son. So God was sending an unmistakable message that there is a debt over every family on the earth. That debt is a debt of sin. And the firstborn was liable for the way you are living and their lives are forfeit until they are redeemed. So in the sense, I would say this. If God had told Abraham to kill his wife, he'd be like, what? He would have been thinking God was off his rocker. But when he heard God tell him, go and kill your son Isaac, what did he think? Contrary to what we think, he thought this is, all right, this is kind of natural. This is our custom. These are our culture. God is calling in my debt that I owe. God was doing, in his mind, something that God had the right to do, and that Isaac was going to die for the sins of Abraham and his family. And in light of all that, I ask this question. Who's going to die for your sins? Who's going to die for your debts? Right before Isaac is about to be sacrificed, God steps in and provides a substitute. He provides a ram. And I want us to be very careful in how we say this and understand this, but God was not asking Abraham to do anything that he did not do. Right when we were helpless... God stepped in, in the person of Jesus, as our substitute. See, here's the point, is is that this whole passage is showing us that what God is asking Abraham to do is something that he is going to do even further down the road, and not just for the sins of Abraham's family, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our substitute. He is the one who is in our relationship to our Father, who is calling in our debt. He is the one who erases that debt. And so we want to come and see that this passage is not about me and me trying, in a sense, to obey Jesus and that I should do it immediately because Abraham did. As much as we should see that Jesus obeyed his Father. Why? So that you and I could actually obey. See, God is not impressed 
with your acts. God is, in a sense, I'm going to clarify that in just a second, but God is not asking for you to do good works to pay off your debt. But isn't that how we operate? I mean, I was talking about this with someone the other day. Any of you live by a debtor's ethic? If I bring you a meal for dinner, what do you have to do? Don't you just feel like you've got to bring me a meal too? Like, if I do this for you, then you have to reciprocate it back to me. And if I don't reciprocate it, how does that, if you don't reciprocate it, how does that make you feel? If someone just serves you over and over and over again and you never do anything back, how many of you feel guilty? And this is how we often relate to God with a debtor's ethic. He's done this, so I need to do this for him. What I'm here to tell you is that Jesus became your substitute so you don't have to have a debtor's ethic. You can just receive the grace that he has poured out upon you. The first thing we see in this particular passage is that Jesus is our substitute. God is calling in your debt as he was calling in the debt for Abraham. And instead of offering our son, God stepped in and offered his son for us. Number two, we see the obedience of the son. God is pleased with Jesus' work and not ours. We are far too quick to find ourselves in the stories of the Old Testament. We generally go from trying to figure out what the text means, what it's saying, and then we ask, what does that mean for me, right? And it's not a bad thing, but how many of you like read the Bible, try to figure out what it's saying, and then say, what does that mean for me? Just be honest, sometimes we do that, right? And what I want to say is like, that's good, and the Bible does speak to me and to our life, but there's this middle step that we miss that I've been talking about from the very beginning. The middle step is, where is Jesus? And let me show you how we do this, we should do this in this passage. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God puts Abraham to the test and seems, it seems awful. In light of all this, God is asking Abraham with a test, with a thing that is the closest to your heart. So look at verse 2. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. God is asking him to take that which is the closest to his heart. And to be willing to sacrifice him. And oftentimes when God is asking and testing us, he doesn't do it with like menial things. When God is testing people in the scriptures, it is always of the most central and dear things to their hearts. And so we often hear things. Like this, it must be like Abraham, and be willing to give up everything. And not that this is not true, it is true. But are we called here to be like Abraham? Because when we do this, we identify ourselves with what character? Abraham. We are putting ourselves in the text. But if you look at the Bible from a big picture, who is Abraham? God the Father. And Isaac becomes who? Jesus. 
And, and if you don't know this, like the Bible says God created us in his image, and because of sin we return the favor, we've made God into our own image. And so now we like to be God. And so automatically, when we try to put ourselves in the Bible, who do we want to be? Abraham. God. And we read this passage and find ourselves as Abraham. But I want, you to say, I want you to just take a step back and be like, no, let's stop for a second. The Bible is first about the triune God who has revealed himself in Jesus by his spirit. And in this passage, Abraham becomes first a picture of God the Father. And the son becomes, Isaac becomes a picture of the son. And we know that because you look at this language, you offer your son, your only son, whom you love. Can anyone think of a New Testament passage that speaks to that reality? Maybe the second most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Or how about passages at the baptism? You are my beloved son. And so throughout the New Testament, especially the Gospels, we have this picture of the Father sending a son, a only son, a only son whom he deeply loves. And the command to Abraham is to sacrifice his son was always a foreshadowing, a picture of what the Father would do with Jesus. The true father would one day walk his own son up the same hill, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of the son's life. Now notice this. The mountain, after this was all over, became a monument. Okay? What did it become a monument to? Did it become a monument to Abraham's obedience? Okay, the mountain isn't called, this is the place where Abraham supremely obeyed God. This is the mountain that demonstrates that if you obey God, God will bless you. What is the mountain called? What's the monument left? Look in verse 14. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The mountain did not become a monument to Abraham's obedience. It became a monument to the provision of the Lord through a son, through a substitute. Too many times in our own lives, our obedience becomes the monument that we want God to look at. The monument of our life should continually be there's a provision. There's a substitute. That's the place where God met me in spite of who I am. That is where God is meeting me despite all of my sin. So if God is pleased with Jesus' obedience... And all of that obedience has been imputed to you. It's been given to you. Now we have this desire to obey, not to merit, not to gain, not to pay back. But because there's someone who came and gave you everything that you couldn't do. 
We, we obey out of a response of love and affection and beauty, not because there's a monument to Scott's obedience that God is putting up on a mountain. Number one, we see there's a substitute. Number two, we see the obedience of a son. And number three, we see the love of the Father. God is leading us, and you can delight in this love. See, too many times for us, I think the love of God is a doctrine we believe, and yet hard to experience the reality of being loved unconditionally because of Jesus by a father. Very few of us ever in this life will ever experience relationships that close. And I don't mean that to be mean, it's just reality. I said this a few weeks ago. The thing that we want most is the very thing we fight against. Isn't it ironic? The thing you want the most is to be unconditionally loved by people and yet we keep putting up walls and things against that so they can't hurt us and we can never receive what we deeply want. And we would be stupid people to think that we only do that with our friends and not God. Because how you relate to others is how you relate to God. And how you relate to God is how you relate to others. And yet this passage can show us steps into experiencing the fullness of what it means to be loved by an everlasting father who knows what it's like to give up his only son as a substitute to take care of your debts. The outcome of this test is in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. In a sense, God did this whole test for what reason? To see if Abraham feared him. Okay? Um, Fear, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is a way of speaking not about like, um, like if God just showed up right here, what would we do? Yeah, we'd, we'd probably just freak out and like just free, you know, fall to the floor. Then we'd, feel, then we'd start realizing what's happening. And we'd probably yeah, start worshiping in the sense of like bow. I don't, I don't know. But wouldn't that be a fearful thing if God just showed up? Okay, in, in, in a sense like I'm not trying to remove the, the, the creature and creator distinction. But in the Bible, fear isn't like just this abject terror. When, when, when the Proverbs chapter 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, like the goal is to fear God, I think the better way to understand fear in the Old Testament is speaking of trust. Abraham was put through this test to see who he really trusted, who he really believed was the God of his life. Many times we are simply told to trust God. Okay? How many of you have been told to trust God before? Fear God, trust Him, love Him. 
And you're going to walk out of here loving, trusting, fearing God until you're in the car with your kids on the way home. And you're going to begin questioning, God, why did you give me these kids? Why are they this way? I wanted different kids. But as you go through the storms of life, eventually, just knowing that you should trust God is not going to be enough. Like, we have moral fortitude. What I mean by that is, like, eventually, like we all have the ability in some hard times to keep putting our trust in God. But, you know, there's sometimes, and there's some things in your life that come along where you just don't trust God anymore. Are you there? Like, just being honest? Like, eventually, like, I use the imagery of waves, like the ocean. Like, you know, the first wave hits you, you're fine. The fifth wave hits you, you're fine. Your kids jump on you and kill you. And by the hundredth wave, you've just what? crashed. And this is what we are like with God. Sometimes that wave just comes and it just smashes us and knocks us to the ground and we wonder where is God? Notice something here in this passage. While God said to Abraham on the screen, now I know that you truly love me because you did not withhold your only son from me. We can now say, that from the foot of the cross, we can say to God, now we know you love us because you did not withhold your only son whom you love from us. See, Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul says this, God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, he, how will he not also graciously give us all things? The point of the love of the Father here is that when wave comes after wave comes after wave comes and your moral fortitude is not enough to get you through the storm and to be known that you're loved by a Father, where do we go? And I'm not telling you that if you go here, everything is just going to change instantly. But what I want you to do is that we go to Jesus. We go to the reality that we know that if God was willing to give up his only son, do you not think that everything else in your life he's also doing for your good? Paul is using an argument from like the greater to the lesser. If God has done this, of course he's going to do all this. He's demonstrating that in the darkest times, because Abraham, pictured as the father, offered up his son Isaac, God the father offered up his true son Jesus for you, that is the greatest demonstration of love that the father could ever demonstrate to you. So how in the world would you and I think that losing our job or losing this, the love of God is not there? We rejoice in the love of God as we allow ourselves to be washed with reality that says this, God did not spare his own son, but demonstrated his love to you and I while we were yet sinners. And in all of that, how is he not going to give you all the things that you need? This story is not about you proving your sacrifice to God. This story is not about you proving your obedience to God. And this story is not about you proving your love for God. 
This story is about God proving his substitute for you, God providing an obedient son for you, and God demonstrating his love for you. And when we begin to see that reality, you will delight in the love of God. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.